Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased you've been able to tune in. This passage is going to be about Israel's future. We're actually dealing with an incredibly controversial issue, incredibly controversial. God's covenant was originally made with the people of Israel and subsequently to people of all nations. It depends on what approach you take to interpreting the Bible as to where you stand on the nation of Israel and its purpose. The question is, has God's covenant with Israel been fulfilled? Let's join Dr. Corbett to explore Israel's national purpose. It's Jeremiah the prophet who wept. This is not just the prophet who delivered a message. This is not just the prophet who said it and closed his scrolls up and walked away and said, well, my job here is done. This is a prophet who felt what he was sharing. I think as believers, we need to feel God's message. And now as we come into this section, we're actually, we're actually dealing with a, an incredibly controversial issue. Incredibly controversial. So controversial that over the years, I've actually had people leave this church because they they didn't like one of the finer points of my position on this issue. I've got to tell you, there are people who have very strong and passionate positions over this section of scripture that we're about to look at now. Not only that, if I had the time, I'd actually show you historically that one of the three views of this, and I'm going to give you the three views of this, of this section of Scripture. One of these three views heavily, heavily influenced the George W. Bush White House administration and literally affected their foreign policy based on largely an understanding of this passage that we're about to look at. So, you know, here we are, we're just reading some random Bible verses spoken by a guy who wrote them around about 600 BC. How on earth could they be relevant today? Well, the how on earth they could be relevant today, and I, I don't know that I can over-dramatise this, is that however you read this verse, if, if we had the time I'd show you historically, thousands, and that's understating it, let's be more realistic, tens of Thousands of people have been killed in the 20th century. It has spilled into the 21st century because of how this passage that we're about to look at has been understood. Now, I know that you, you, here we are in you know, the most beautiful part of planet Earth. We are in northern Tasmania. We've never had a war here. We've never known famine. We've never known massive natural disaster. We are so far removed from what we're about to read. You, I, I don't blame you if, you if you hear me sort of unpack this and go, oh, Andrew, just, just give us the good stuff. Well, well, why would we want to know this? Because whether you realise it or not, our own government has a position that is shaped by how we understand this passage. Now you might think, oh, you're, just, you're stretching it. Well, you tell me if I'm stretching it when we look at this. This passage is going to be about Israel's future. And so the title of this message, Jeremiah part 86, 
is Israel's national purpose. Israel's national purpose. Let's have a look at verse 35 and see if you can track with me and we'll try and make sense of this. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Just a, just a small point. It's probably lost on you that this expression, sun, moon and stars, in this verse, just sounds like a reference to that bright thing that we can normally see in the sky and those twinkly things in the night sky and that kind of thing made of cheese that goes across the night sky. But that's not what's happening when God sets this up with that expression, sun, moon and stars. You see, I said that we're on, we, we are almost, if we were in New Zealand, we'd be literally on the other side of the earth to Israel. But we're in Tasmania, we're pretty much on the other side of the earth to, to, to Israel. We're, we're, we're so close, we might as well be. We are so far removed from the way they think, their language, their history, their culture. We hear an expression like sun, moon and stars, and we just think sun and at night time, the moon and the stars, without realising this is actually poetic language for something. Remember in Genesis 37, Joseph dreamed a dream. He dreamed two dreams. And the first dream was of the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to him. Remember that? And remember what he was told that meant? It meant his father, his mother, and his brothers. That was the beginning of the nation of Israel. Sun, moon, and stars. Notice each of those give forth light. The prophet Isaiah said that Israel had been called to shine its light. A light that communicated to the world. The prophet Joel, when Israel had sinned and walked away from God, said this, The sun has been darkened, the moon has been turned to blood, and the stars fall from the sky and no longer give forth its light. Now we could read that as Tasmanians going, what the heck was going on in Israel that year? The sun? No. Do you, so just think in terms, if, you're a, if you have any scientific understanding of astrophysics, do you know what would happen if God turned the sun off? Even just for a minute? Life on earth would stop. We are utterly dependent on the sun's light. Now question, when Joel said the sun has been, the sun no longer gives forth its light or the sun has been turned to dark, did, did it literally in a wooden literal sense happen? No, it didn't. But what did happen? What that language represents is Israel. The sun, moon and stars. And when they stopped, because a, a, a moon is really a reflector, isn't it? So that when they turn away from God and go their own way, following idols and other things, they no longer give forth light. Can a star fall? I mean, if you know anything about the vacuum of space, stars don't fall. So it means something. And Jesus used the same expression in Matthew 24. He used exactly the same expression. And again, he was describing Israel's unfaithfulness to God. So, notice that. 
That's in this verse. Who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea and so on. All right, next verse. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Okay. So there's a couple of things here. I want to come back to them in a moment, but I need to explore something with you. The couple of things that I see in this is that it's clearly talking about Israel. Because I said to you before, sun, moon and stars in verse 35 speaks of Israel. Verse 36 just plainly says it. Yes, I'm talking about Israel. Okay. And they shall cease to be a nation before me. Here's the other thing. God uses this expression, fixed order, in both of those verses. In both of those verses, God says he has fixed an order. Now, there's, there's two senses of this. Because he's using sun, moon and stars to describe Israel. That's called an analogy. But that's not the only analogy that he's used. He's used the fixed order as an analogy as well. What I, what I mean by that is there are certain laws that determine the way the universe works and God says those are fixed. We call them laws. Scientists call them laws. It's the law of gravity, for example, is one of them. It's a fixed law. The law of the speed of light within the universe is a fixed law. Nothing can move faster than the speed of light within the universe. God has fixed that and he did it from the moment he created. Fixed it. Some people say that speed of light slowing down or has slowed down or whatever, but God says twice that he's fixed it. Just, just a small point, but we'll, I want to explore something else with you at the moment. All right, and this is it. The different, the different Christian positions about Israel. I, I'm sure that uh, uh, there's probably more than these three, but these are the three big ones, and, and see if you can recognise these. The first one originated in um, the, the, the Middle Ages. It, it then began to be talked about through what's called the Renaissance period and around the Reformation period, this, this became an idea that, that began to grow. And then in the 19th century, that is the 1800s, this idea became really big. It just grew. By the end of the, the 19th century, this idea was gaining in massive popularity. And it's the idea called Zionism. Zionism considers God's promise to Israel being intrinsically linked to the promised land. Here's Zionism. Zionism says God gave the land that is known as Israel to Israel forever unconditionally. It's theirs. Now, maybe if you're beginning to think ahead, you'll realise that largely whenever Benjamin Netanyahu speaks, the, the Prime Minister of Israel... He speaks from a Zionist perspective. He will actually quote the Old Testament prophets that talk about God giving the land to Israel as theirs. And he'll use this word that the prophets use, the word forever. Therefore, Zionists feel that Israel can use whatever force or means necessary to either gain or maintain that land. 
That's Zionism. The next idea is similar. In fact, it's often called Christian Zionism. So first Zionism is held by mostly by Jewish people, by Jews. This idea is dispensationalism, also, as I mentioned, called Christian Zionism. This is the idea that Christians hold. It sounds very similar to Zionism, except with a twist. The twist is this, that Christian Zionists or dispensationalists believe that God removed Israel from the land for a time. A a time is a dispensation. And that that dispensation has reactivated, and they, they say it reactivated in what year, Mr. Loft? 1948. And that in 1948, a new dispensation commenced. And they claim it's the fulfilment of Bible prophecies. But not only that, here's the twist. That if all of the Jews can be relocated to their land, it will be the trigger for the return of Christ. Jesus will return. That's what they believe. That's called Christian Zionism or dispensationalism. Here's the third position. It's called the Reformed position. It considers that God has fulfilled his promises to Israel and that the church is not the replacement of Israel but the continuation of God's people. So there's the three positions. Now, that, that second one, dispensationalism, was what shaped George W. Bush's foreign policy, particularly his Middle East policy. I don't think there's any... I don't even think they're trying to hide it. That was what they held to. All right. Let's read the next verse. And it says this. Thus says the Lord, If the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. Okay. So the first two groups say that these verses support their position, that Israel will always be a nation before God, that that Israel is always going to be special in God's eyes, that God will always favour the physical people of Israel He will always do all he can to ensure that that land that we call Israel is guaranteed to be theirs, based on the verses that we've just read. All right, here's here's what we need to know. Hopefully you can see some practical nature to this. Each of these different views about Israel, and by the way, Paul talks about this in the Gospel of Romans, the book of Romans, Romans chapters 9, 10 and 11, talk about this issue. So this is a New Testament issue as well. But in order to come to either the Zionism position, the dispensational position, or what we might call the Reformed position, you actually need to read the Bible completely differently. And nearly all three groups claim that what you need to do is to read the Bible literally. Literally. So here's my question. What does it mean to read the Bible literally? Literally. When Jesus stood on the hill outside Jerusalem 
and said, O Jerusalem, I have often wanted to gather you like a mother hen. What did he mean? I mean, I don't think any of us seriously think Jesus was a chook. Here's, here's something to think about. When God inspired the Bible, did he know what he was trying to say? It's a silly question. Of course he did. Do we know what he was trying to say? Well, that's a different question. And that's why we need to do a little bit of work, which means I'm suggesting to you the best method is to take all of Scripture, the concordance literal method. So in that sense, literal doesn't mean wooden literal. Literal means it means the literature was, was trying to convey something. So if I, if, if I said to you, um, it was raining cats and dogs, you, 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 know, you know what I mean. And you can take me literally in the, in the sense that I'm trying to convey. I mean it was very wet. But if you took me wooden literally, you're the one doing damage to what I'm saying. Does that make sense? I think we need to do the same with the Bible. Is that always going to be easy? No, not always going to be easy. It may mean that we have to do a little bit of work to get there. All right. Now, here's, here's another thing, because people say, well, if we, if we take the Bible for what it actually says, then <clears throat> uh, it's going to disagree with what we know to be true. For example, someone was trying to tell me the other day, the Bible says that the earth is flat, and therefore, if you travel so far, you'll fall off it. Not actually sure which Bible verse they were referring to, and that was one of the things I actually had a young man ring me up from Hobart and he said, I understand that you know a little bit about the Bible and I'm a Christian who's about to walk away from Christianity. I have some questions about the Bible before I do. And I thought, well, I'm more than happy to talk to you. And he said, I just can't handle the fact that the Bible encourages for children to be stoned to death. And, and so here's my question. Uh, neither can I. Where does it actually say that? Well, I don't exactly know where it says that. And I'm not trying to mock this person either, by the way. I think this is a problem. That there, there are people who think the Bible says something and it doesn't actually say it. He very quickly dropped that one and then went on to slavery. Well, the Bible encourages slavery. I said, really? Again not trying to beat the guy up, but I said, where does it do that? He said, well, the Old Testament, it actually gives laws about how slaves should be treated. Yes, but that's not, what, that's not your claim. Because the Bible says this is how you should treat slaves, does not say you should have slaves. In fact, do you realise that under that same law, it says you shall not have a slave longer than seven years. At the end of seven years, that slave should be set free. Did you also realise that that word slave translates as the word servant, not slave. It was a hired employee, not what we think of when we think of black Africans in manacles and working cotton fields. It's not the same thing. So therefore, some regard the Bible as being not true when it comes to uh, matters of science. True when it comes to matters of faith, but not true when it comes to matters of science. Well, do you notice... 
there's a little ex- that expression fixed order and again if we had the time we'd see this is quite a profound scientific statement and i'm going to suggest to you the bible is in complete agreement with the best of science complete agreement we know that the universe began some 13.7 billion years ago it began well my bible tells me in the beginning god created the bible also tells me the universe began the Bible talks about how God stretched out the heavens. Well, the best of science tells us that the universe is also being stretched out and expanded as well. And we could go on and on in the same thing. So I don't think the Bible and science are at odds at all. So let's come back to Israel. What was their purpose? Why did God pick them? They were, they were chosen as a people to show the world God's glory. What does God's glory mean? God's beauty, God's majesty, God's wonder. They were also chosen to reveal to the world God's laws. Psalmist talks about this in Psalm 119. In Deuteronomy chapters 8 and so on, it also talks about this. God also chose Israel to bless them, to show the world what it looked like if you lived a life that God blessed. Deuteronomy chapter 8 talks about that. So they were to reveal to the world God's glory, God's laws, and what a blessed life looks like. I'm going to suggest, so are we. So are we. We're, we're, we have the same purpose. God's covenant with Abraham. You know, it talks in Galatians that the seed of Abraham was Jesus, not people of the flesh, not Jews, but Jesus. And it also says those who put their faith and trust in Jesus are sons of Abraham. That's you and I. If you follow Christ, the Bible calls you a son of Abraham. And, and, I'm, and I've got infallible proof to prove that. There's a song. And I just rest my case. That song just, my, I rest my case. Proves it. Father Abraham, how many sons? What's the next line? I am, oh, many sons had father Abraham. I was just kind of cutting to the chase, Denise. <laughs> I am one of them. See, proof, conclusive proof. See, rest my case. All right, God's, is, God's covenant with Israel was also fulfilled by Christ. Jesus fulfilled God's promise to Israel. Jesus is the, the, the promised land. Jesus is the rest. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the fulfilment of all God's promises to Israel. Now, here's, here's what we read in this section. And let, let's go on. If you've got your Bible there, verse 38. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall re, uh, be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out further, straight to the hill Gareb, and, and uh, shall then turn to Goa. Verse 40. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be uprooted or overthrown anymore. And there's that word forever. So a couple of points here. Firstly, after Nebuchadnezzar came in and removed Israel from the land, they were Israel was returned to the land. We read this in Ezra and Nehemiah. <clears throat> So there was a fulfilment of that prophecy. But here's, here's the, the big deal about the covenant, and we've already read it earlier in this chapter, is that God's covenant is now no longer exclusively for an ethnic group. 
This is the whole point of the epistle to the Ephesians. God has broken down every wall of division between ethnic groups when they come to Christ. So, God's covenant is now available to people of all nations. I said to you before that the point of being in covenant with God is to experience his glory, reveal his glory, to know his laws, to live out his laws and to enjoy his blessings. That's what happens when you're in covenant with God. Here's my question. Are you? Are you walking in covenant relationship with God? Do you know God? Are you enjoying his glory? Do you love his law? And are you living a life that aligns with how he says you can be blessed? This is the new covenant. God's purpose for Israel is God's purpose for his church today. And the apostle in Galatians 6 calls the church the Israel of God. And I think today if people understood that God's purpose is not tied into a patch of dirt but it's tied into people who can turn to Christ there would quite literally be literally be tens if not hundreds of thousands of people who don't have to die because right now there are Christians who are funding major military operations so that Israel can militarily kill people who are occupying part of land that they see God wants for them. And I think that's really sad. I think it's a misreading of scripture. God's purpose is not about dirt. God's purpose is about your heart. People surrendered to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus came. Thank you that Jesus came and died and made a new covenant for us to enter into. Help us, oh God, I pray, to be a people that come to know you in your glory, people who can make your glory known, people who can know your laws and love your law and a people who can enjoy your blessing. Now I pray for those listening to me right now and they don't have peace with God, they don't know the God of the Bible as their Lord and Saviour. If that's you right now, you are one prayer away from peace with God. Perhaps you did once, you've wandered away. Why don't you come home? A prayer that says, oh God, forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me, wash me. Come into my life and help me to live for you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What was Israel's purpose? To reveal to the world God's glory, God's law and God's blessings. More from Dr. Corbett next week with an intriguing message, Shut Up for Not Shutting Up. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Israel's National Purpose, are available via the website, findingtruthmatters.org, or by contacting us at Lagana Media, P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. 
Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.